Good morning, everybody. We're glad that you're here. Um, I'm going to read a psalm real quick. Um, this is Psalm 145, 3 through 9 from the message version um, to lead us into worship. So, God is magnificent. He can never be praised enough. There are no boundaries to his greatness. Generation after generation stands in awe of your work. Each one tells stories of your mighty acts. Your beauty and splendor have everyone talking. I compose songs on your wonders. Your marvelous doings are headline news. I could write a book full of the details of your greatness. The fame of your goodness spreads across the country. Your righteousness is on everyone's lips. God is all mercy and grace, not quick to anger, is rich in love. God is good to one and all. Everything he does is suffused with grace. Stand up and worship with us. Well, good morning and... Welcome to Regeneration. We're so glad to have you here this morning. Um, if it's your first time with us, uh, we'd love to just let you know that you're welcome, you're expected. Um, on your way out, there's a table. Um, on it, there's a little card that says, hey, if you'd fill that out, we'd love to connect with you through our email, take a mug, it's our gift to you. Um, and here at Regeneration, we're passionate about interrupting people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus. So our prayer is that as we sing together and hear from God's word and just spend time together, that you would be interrupted. Um, and then just a couple of quick announcements. If you have a Facebook account and you'd like to check in using the hashtag RegenGives, um, this month in August, our hashtags go um, generate donations to The Basement, which is a ministry in Warren that just works with those people who are in poverty, who are homeless, um, who need clothing, just a lot of different, they meet a lot of different needs. And then a couple of upcoming service um, opportunities next Sunday night, right, is that right? 26, yeah. Next Sunday night at 5 p.m. at our Grace Campus, 6 p.m. at our Grace Campus, um, we're going to be setting up for their rummage sale, which is what benefits their food pantry. So um, we have a ton of stuff that people have donated, and we just need people to come and help move tables and all that stuff. So we would love if you would join us for that. And then um, Saturday, September 8th at 10 a.m. is the recovery rally in Warren, and Kyle and I and a few others We'll be there. We'll be handing out T-shirts and sunglasses and just kind of supporting those in our community who are in recovery. So those are just a couple of the upcoming things. Kyle's going to have some more announcements later, but I'm going to turn it over to Zach for our offering. Hey, guys. I'm Zach. I'm going to go ahead and pray for this offering. So if you guys want to bow your heads, join me. Heavenly Father, thank you for being with us today. Uh, you are a loving and patient and gracious and fair God and we are so excited to be in your presence Lord I just pray that you bless this offering today and allow us to keep moving forward in the plans that you've given us um, Lord I thank you for everything that you've given us already um, including maybe something less Maybe something that's not as valued, and, and that's, that's any type of doubt that we have, Lord. So if there's anybody here that's doubting, um, being here, being with you, Lord, just help them understand that it's that doubt that can actually draw them closer to you. So 
we thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Hey, let's pray. God, we want you to rise to the level of our attention and our focus this morning, and we want to rise our level of attention and focus to see you in our midst. And so, Father, we bring ourselves to you today because, plot twist, ourselves are all we have and invite you to speak to us. God, wherever your word is explained, your voice is heard. So help us to hear it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so kids are going to go back with Miss Caitlin. So that's going on. While Zach was praying, Zoe woke up and like looked like this. Because she has no idea where she was. So that's probably what I was like, same. I felt that way, right? Yeah. So... Um, hey, just real quick, my name's Kyle, by the way, I get to be the pastor here, uh, one of them at least, and super thankful that you'd give us part of your Sunday. Um, if you noticed uh, in your program when you got it on the way in, something about something called circles. Um, circles are, if you're familiar with church, it's like a small group, only it's not a small group. So if you really like small groups, you won't like this. If you've been to a small group and not liked it, you'll probably like this, okay? So circles meet in a home, uh, there's a meal, and then at Regen, we're really trying to develop and live into the three relationships that we can't live without. So up, our relationship with the Father, in, our relationship with one another as believers, and out, our relationship with people that those who do not yet know. And circles are a vehicle to be... Uh, connect us into those three relationships. So those are going to start the week of September 9, and you get to see the people who are leading and shepherding those circles. If you're interested how seriously we take this, we want 60 to 80 percent of people at Regen in a circle. And um, if there's no circle geographically near you, all the more reason to jump into one and grow it because these are designed to multiply, not divide multiply, not divide. So when they reach a certain number, somewhere between 14 and 18, we will multiply groups, and that's why there's multiple leaders for every group. And so our goal would be to multiply one out this side of the lake and maybe another one in Cortland all along the way to something called missional community, which is going to come later down the road. But um, we've been training those people that you see on that piece of paper all summer, and so they're ready and have experienced a circle. And so much about following Jesus, you have to live it before you lead it. So they've lived it, and that's really cool. So please be thinking about that. Again, those we kick off the week of September 9th. We've already had a circle for middle school and high school students, and that's gone really, really well. So excited about that. All right, Matthew chapter 7. We're almost at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Somebody clapped. I like that. I don't know. It's like, yeah, let's go. Let's do it. Uh, Matthew chapter 7. Uh, we're wrapping up Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his manifesto for a whole new way to be human and the inbreaking reality of the kingdom of God, we could call it. And Jesus is, is just like any other preacher, he's going to start wrapping it up, but have about a, you know, four or five more things to say, right? So he's going to say, in sum, and then keep talking for a little while. So, um, and we're looking just at verses 12, 13, and 14 of chapter 7 today. So we're just going to dive right in. I, I was on social media this week because I'm a millennial. And um, that was funny, I thought. Okay, listen, we're going to get to a bad place if we're not laughing at me. It's really important. I'm an Enneagram 3. I need your approval. Okay. So 
Um, there's a quote by Mark Twain I stumbled across in which he says, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do. There's a great deal of the Bible that I do not understand. I've been studying first, I've been studying first and second Samuel for us to preach through that next year. And I am constantly, constantly aware, I know nothing. I know zero things about what is happening. It is weird and surprising. And so I spend a lot of time personally, I guess also professionally, studying and researching scripture to understand the parts that I don't understand. And this, this is a good thing. Scripture encourages us to engage with the text, to wrestle with it, to go deeper. Um, there's a great verse in 2 Timothy where Paul says, study to show yourself approved, an approved workman rightly dividing the word of truth. The King James version of that was on, my, on the wall of one of the buildings where I went to undergrad. It is good to delve into the text. It is good to seek to understand it. But what is at the heart of Mark Twain's quote isn't so much the idea that study is bad, but the idea that we can easily replace acting on what we know with studying what we don't. Let me say that again. That we can easily replace the parts, that, that we can easily replace obeying and acting on the parts we know with studying to understand the parts we can't. This is an old sermon illustration by a guy named Francis Chan who was like, all the rage when I was like 18, right? And Francis Chan says, imagine if you invited, or, or not invited, you told your child to go upstairs and clean their room. And after a few hours, you've not seen hide nor hair of them. So you go upstairs and their room looks like this. The room looks like it's still a mess. Yeah, see, and there they are just sitting reading. And you say, uh, hey, bud, what's going on? And, and your kid says, oh, dad, I have just had the sweetest time learning about how to clean my room. I have watched YouTube videos about cleaning my room. I have read instruction manuals on how to organize my room. I have meditated and reflected on how I'm going to clean my room. But what's the problem? The room is not clean, right? The room is not clean. And if you're missing it, here's the deal. This is often how we behave about scripture. Our knowledge at almost all times outweighs our obedience. Our knowledge at almost all times outweighs our obedience. It ain't the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do. We're getting to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' foundational teaching of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, about what it means to be a disciple. The word disciple, simple word, mathetes, a learner. Don't be thrown by it's where we get our word mathematics. Okay, mathetes, a learner of the way of Jesus is somebody that wants to pay close attention to this Sermon on the Mount. And as Jesus wraps up the sermon, it ends on a note of doing it ends on a note like this in verse seven, chapter 7, verse 12. Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. Now, you're probably familiar with this. This is called the golden rule. Jesus did not call it that. Two Anglicans named Charles Gibbon and Thomas Jackson started calling that, it that around 1604 in their sermons. And the golden rule is interesting because traces of it can be found in almost every world religion. In fact, it can even be found in like the weird spooky minor religions and other places of the globe 
Two, in 1993, 143 religious leaders came together and endorsed the golden rule in what was called the Declaration Toward a Global Ethic. And you can find a version of the golden rule in Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, and even Islam. And Simon Blackburn, who's a moral philosopher, says that you, he goes so far as to say that the golden rule in some form or another is, an, is found in almost every ethical moral tradition. And for me, at least, the universality of this command, that we can find it everywhere, doesn't make the command more compelling. It actually makes it more boring to me. It makes it less compelling until we notice how Jesus attaches uh, this, this little line. Because when we talk about the golden rule, what do we talk about? We say, do to others as you would have them do to you but we hack off what Jesus really said, which is this is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. This is Jesus' summary statement on the Sermon on the Mount. It is his foundational bottom line of everything that he's been saying in these chapters. Jesus isn't some religious leader just telling us to do something. He is not just offering us a moral ethic. He is saying that the entire revelation of God to his people can be summed up by saying, do to others whatever you would want them to do to you. He's saying everything, Jesus is saying everything that God has ever said to us can be summed up and captured in, and you can see its essence in this line, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. He says this is the essence of all that is taught in the law of the prophets. It's as if everything that God asks us to do hangs on this one command, like the clothes in my closet on that pole. Without it, everything falls apart. The entire revelation of God to his people, everything that he has to say to us about being part of the new humanity is found in this teaching, and it's found, notice, in doing. In doing. Does not say, intend to do to others whatever you would like them to do to you, not plan to do to others, not hope to do to, but do. Doing is the core teaching of the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It is With this verse and so many others, the matter is not in the knowing, the matter is in the doing. It ain't the parts of the Bible that I don't understand. It's the parts that I do. Because in these sentences, Jesus is setting a tone for what it means to be his disciples, the learners of the way of the kingdom. It's about doing, acting, Which is why James says, let's be doers of the word and not hearers only. What Jesus is trying to do at this point of the Sermon on the Mount is he is trying to evoke in us a response. He's calling us to do something, which is why Jesus continues to say in verses 13 and 14, he says, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad. And did I think about playing some ACDC? You know it, okay? The highway to hell is broad. Its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. If you've got your Bible, uh, the word I would underline there is choose. Is choose. 
God is interested in relationship with us, and so he engages in relational behavior. He does not force our hand. He does not manipulate us. He reveals himself. He reveals his character and his purposes and his plan and what it means to follow him, and then he offers us a choice. This is always how God works, revelation and response revelation and response. Back in the book of Exodus, God sets his people free from slavery. They go through the Red Sea, which has been parted for them. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses climbs the mountain and comes back down with the law, the Torah, the way that they will live in covenant relationship with Yahweh. And before they enter the land, 40 years later, there was a detour involved Before they enter the land, Moses reads the law to them, preaches a series of sermons on the law to them. This is the book of Deuteronomy. And at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses looks at his people and says, today I have set before you death and life. Choose life. Centuries later, Jesus, who Matthew is very carefully trying to reveal as the new Moses, Jesus climbs a mountain delivers to his people a new Torah, a new way that they will relate to God. And he says to them, I have set before you a narrow gate and a narrow way and a wide gate and a wide way. Choose life, he says. Choose the narrow way. So if we have a choice, if we're called to respond to this revelation if we are invited to act in this text. And it's interesting, and he's going to tell like four little, kind of four little snippets that change all the way through the end of the Sermon on the Mount. They all have to do with doing. They all have to do with acting. They have to do with acting from the heart, but they have to do with acting. If we're going to be asked to make a choice, if two ways have been set before us, it would be helpful to understand the choice before us. So three questions. What makes the gate narrow? What about these people choosing the H word, right? And what about this road being difficult? There's a lot in this text. So what about the narrow gate? What about the highway to hell? And what about how the road for Jesus is difficult? Let's start with what exactly makes the narrow gate narrow? Here, this is what it is. What makes the narrow gate narrow is obedience. It's doing what Jesus has said in this Sermon on the Mount, summarized by, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this is the essence of the law and the prophets. Contextually, it makes most sense that Jesus is saying the way to enter the narrow gate is by the obedience we exert with the grace God supplies as we follow him on this narrow way. What makes the gate narrow is doing. What makes it narrow is obedience. What makes the gate narrow is how you and I choose every day to wrap our lives around the life of Jesus. And this is important because we often like to assume that the narrow gate is narrow because of doctrinal precision, of theological accuracy. So what makes the narrow gate narrow is if you believe this certain set of things and go to the various corners of the Christian world and you will find a very stringent list of beliefs that need to be adhered to in order to enter the narrow gate. The problem with that is two things. The first is that 
there really is no clear standard in the New Testament for what one has to believe to get into heaven. I'm not saying that there's no standard. I'm just saying the standard is unclear. Because there's this guy called the thief on the cross who just looks to Jesus and says, you know, do not forget me. And Jesus says, today I'll be with you in paradise. Come to seminary with me. And when we start to have this conversation, it all goes to hell really fast, right? Because the thief on the cross throws a wrench in almost any argument at any time, right? But there's no clear standard in the letters of Paul that if we adhere to these things or don't, I mean, as church tradition has carried on, we've said, if you don't believe like the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, you're kind of unrecognizable to us. But for one, there's, there's no that, none of that. And the second thing, and more importantly, is Jesus does not end the Sermon on the Mount saying, believe these things. He does not call for our belief. He calls for our action. So the, the gate is narrow not because of theology, nor is the gate narrow because of religious experience. The gate does not open as narrow as it is for those with a long resume of religious experience, which can range from church attendance to missions trips to experiences of the presence of God in worship, even experiences of the miraculous. There was a guy in a, in a community that I was a part of for a time that had been healed. I mean, it was miraculous at some point in his past, and he never moved beyond that. It was kind of the place that he stayed in that that was the entire definition of his relationship with God. If it was about our personal experiences, we wouldn't have stories like Noah, who was delivered miraculously from the flooding of the whole earth, and who, at the, once the ground is dry and he gets off the boats, gets drunk and naked. Like significant spiritual experience, like these moments of high emotion in worship with God, these moments of great compassion and service to others. All of these things are good, but Jesus doesn't say the gate will open to you when you and I work through your spiritual resume at the end of days. Now, what makes the gate narrow is our obedience, because frankly, if it were about accruing religious experience or about accruing knowledge, the road wouldn't really be all that difficult. The road wouldn't really be all that difficult. What's difficult is acting on what we know. It's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do. Jesus says it is obedience, living into what Jesus has said here in the Sermon on the Mount and in the rest of Scripture, and living into it with the grace that God supplies. That's what makes the narrow gate. And interestingly, this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus talks about hell, and it's something that Jesus is totally fine talking about. Jesus has no problem talking about hell. In fact, take everybody else in the New Testament, nobody talks about hell nearly as much as Jesus does. And when Jesus speaks of hell here in Matthew 7, he says something interesting. He says that no one is sent to hell He says, everyone who goes to hell chooses it. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. Jesus goes as far as to say that many choose that way. And this goes against the grain of our culture, right? The lost people in your life, the people that are far from Jesus, the people that are skeptical and cynical about church and religion, they're going to say, how could a good and loving God condemn someone to hell? But what's interesting is that Jesus says that it's a matter of choice. 
Jesus says that someone chooses it, that over their lifetime, in response to the revelation of God, they choose something different. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite people writing about heaven and hell, and he says, perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. Or even better, he says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. I'm setting before you death and life. What Jesus is saying in this picture is this, that every day heaven and hell are set before us. In this particular instance, Jesus isn't speaking so much to eternal destination as he is speaking to daily decision. And every day we are set before us the choice to either make our lives and our marriages and our workplaces and our church a place where the culture of heaven is experienced on earth or conversely where hell is experienced on earth in our marriages and in our relationships and in our friendships and in our workplaces. Every day there is a choice set before us and the truth is that it is far more easy and desirable and even expedient to choose hell than it is to choose to he- choose heaven because the highway to hell is wide and smooth and easy it is a four lane super highway getting exactly where you want it to go it is the autobahn the road to life is narrow and has a 15 mile an hour speed limit which is why Jesus says the road is difficult. It is difficult first because we do not walk it either by our experiences or by our knowledge. Knowing a lot and having a lot of experience do not make it easier to walk this road. Second, it is hard to walk because we find in this world where nothing is as it's supposed to be that it's far easier to choose hell when given the option. And so Jesus says, this road is difficult. And note that he says, few ever find it. Few ever find it. Let me be clear about something. This is really important. When Jesus says this, it is not to make you, as you follow Jesus, doubt whether or not you're actually on the road. He's trying to help us see why Christianity, if it, is, if it becomes, in the short periods where Christianity was the dominant cultural language in the West, it was always a disaster. It was always a disaster. Because Christianity, when it becomes commonplace in the culture, is actually no longer Christianity. Christianity is only Christianity. The way of Jesus is only the way of Jesus when it is at the minority and fringes of culture. He's trying to help us understand why it's not easy for everybody to just jump on the road. My family has this bizarre obsession, or at least did when I was growing up, to talk around the dinner table of if blank were a Christian, then everybody would be a Christian. I don't understand this. But it was like if Oprah 
were a Christian, then everybody would become a Christian. And I swear, I love you so much, I will smack you upside the head if you come up to me after today and be like, but Oprah is a Christian, okay? She's not. There was this sense that if this person in influence became a Christian, well, then it would suddenly make everybody else's do this. And by the way, the other version of this is if our president were a Christian, then our whole nation would be Christians. Don't work like that. The road is difficult and narrow and few ever find it. And what we like to do is try to find ways to make it so more people find it. And I'm not saying make it harder, okay? Paul talks about this later. He says, we're already an odor to those who are perishing. Let's not be stinkier, okay? But what we're often trying to do is find ways to make the doorway just a little bit wider and make the road just a little bit smoother. God does not need a pothole guy to make the road easier. Do you know that, did you see this, that Domino's is doing this? Have you seen this online? That Domino's is filling potholes that uh, cities won't, and then they're spray painting like the number of, like the Domino's logo and the number of the nearest Domino's on that pothole. Fantastic advertising, it costs them nothing. It's so cool to me. God does not need dominoes to fill in the potholes on the narrow way. If it's difficult, he likes it that way. And when he talks about the few ever finding it, it is not to make someone in this room who is worried about truly being in or maybe being out more fretful about and to work harder about getting in. That's not what Jesus says here. I meet a lot of people who worry about whether or not they're truly saved. Go find one of your friends that hates church and hates Jesus and ask them if they're worried about that plot twist, they're not, okay? Nobody outside of, like, nobody outside of church, nobody outside of, like, really acting as a disciple is, like, layers down, like, I really hope that I get into heaven. Like, I'm really nervous about this. If you're fretful about actually being on the narrow road, it's a sign that you're on the narrow road. If you're worried, if you're worried about being saved, it's a good sign that God is at work within you. The road is difficult. The road is difficult. It is difficult to love our spouses that Christ loves the church. It is hard to love our children without exasperating them. It is hard to control our tongue, to set aside anxiety. It is hard to live generously. It ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do. And here's what it seems like Jesus is trying to do in these verses. He's trying to curb our addiction to what is easy and what is simple. What Jesus is arguing for is anything but simple and easy in these verses, which is why the message translation of this is fabulous. The message translation of verses 13 and 14 say, don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire and easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff, even though crowds of people do. The way to life, the way to God, is vigorous and requires total attention. Don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Now, this is why this is tricky. This is why the Sermon on the Mount is not about making Christians, it is about making disciples. 
because disciples give vigorous and total attention to the way to life, and Christians clock in and clock out for as many Sundays as they're available. And what Jesus is inviting us to is something far more, far more complex and far more difficult and far more challenging because it is only in that place that we actually experience rest. It is only in that place that we experience grace. I've been wrestling all week with this tension of Jesus saying, the road is difficult and few ever find it. And something he says four chapters later in the Gospel of Matthew when he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And it kind of makes you want to be like, okay, Jesus, which one is it? Is it easy or is it difficult? Is it heavy or is it light? Like which one, Jesus, did you want us to go with? And, and here's the tension, and I think Scripture Scripture doesn't contradict itself unless it wants to, and this is one of those places it wants to because it wants to call out a tension in us. And the tension is that this difficult road to life that is narrow, that is hard to find, that, that is plagued by 15-mile-an-hour driving over potholes with weird roundabouts every other mile and, and all of these strange detours down country roads, that this, this, as difficult as it is, is actually easy, and the Greek word in this means pleasant and light. It is the only place that we find rest for our souls. It is the only place that we can learn, in the message translation of these verses, the unforced rhythms of grace. It's the only place. It's the only place. This is hard. It's hard to get our thumb on. It's like putting it on a water, watermelon seed. But here's what I'm trying to help us see this morning. Is that every day it is set before us to make a choice. And we can choose what is easy and wide. But if we choose that in the shortcuts and in the life hacks that we want to just practice in our spare time, we never actually find the grace and the fulfillment and the rest for our souls that scripture has promised. And here's why it is easy and difficult at the same time. Because it is easy to hear that God provides, that his character is true, that who he says is who he is, that his promises are now and will be fulfilled in our lives. It is another thing entirely to have that and to have to improvise in all of life situations that are just so difficult. Do we like easy or do we like grace? Do we want rest or do we want quick fixes? It's not the parts of the Bible I understand that, that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do. Father, we offer ourselves to you again and just look at the choices that we make. And uh, just want to be realigned. And so God, help us to do that today. Help us as we respond to you 
to hear your voice and do what you say. You have set before us life and death. Choose life, you say. The way that we're building, you're gonna, we're going to do something a little different this morning. We're trying something. We're trying to shape our community around this pattern of revelation and response. So God says something, and then we do something about it. So even on the back of your program, what is God saying? What am I going to do about it? Okay. Do you want to know what a disciple is? Do you want to know what a person who follows Jesus is? They hear God's voice, and they do what he says. Boom, done. And so um, there's a couple ways I can invite you to respond this morning. We're going to sing. If you want to sit and journal and reflect, if you want to pray, However, you need to do that this morning as you think about the choice, the choice. And uh, as we continue to sing later on, we'll receive communion together. So however you want to respond to God in this moment, this is your moment. You can do whatever you want. We come to this table every week because we need to be reminded that we've been rescued. And we come to this table to remind us of who we are. That on the night when Jesus took bread and broke it, that on the night when his when he offered this cup to his friends, he opened for us the narrow way and the narrow gate. He opened to us the way to rest and to life. And so the way we receive communion together at Regen is simply this, and some, you'll come forward, someone will break off the bread, you'll dip it in the cup, and as like we like to say, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so um, Steph, and Zach um, and Mitch, would you come help me? And we have gluten free, so if you'd like that, let us know and we can help you out. So we pray that you would pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup, that they might become for us the body and blood of Christ, that in the eating and drinking of them, we might be the body of Christ poured out for this world that you've redeemed. God, nourish us as we walk this narrow way by your grace today. Amen. The table is open. As a community, we seem to be in this season where we get to send a lot of people. And so Mary-Kate and Colleen, come here for a second. Mary-Kate and Colleen are my like 15th cousins, 14 times removed or something, but uh, there's browning in both of our bloods. And Uh, The truth of the matter is, by the way, some of you know Mary-Kate and Colleen, some of you don't, but we would not be where we are as a community without them because they did a lot of investing in this in in what what I called Regen 2.0. We're in now 4.0, so things keep changing. But um, Mary-Kate and Colleen are going to places near and far but equally exotic. Uh, Mary-Kate is moving to Tiffin 
uh, and Colleen is moving to China to teach English, right? Tiffin in China, right? Like <laughs> the same. So we wanted to pray and send them out. So Stefan, you get on the other side of Colleen and then I'm going to pray and uh, yeah. Jesus, thanks for Mary, Kate, and Colleen. Thank you for the investment in the kingdom uh, in this little corner of the world they've made over the last three or four years in Girard and here and in all the other places they have conversations pointing people to you. God, as they leave the 330, or at least this corner of it, um, God, we pray for your spirit to go before them, to be behind them, to be beside them in this new endeavor. God, we pray that there would be tremendous fruitfulness for them both um, in the work they do, and especially for the kingdom. And so, God, in their faces, may they see Jesus' face and their voices. May they hear your voice. Um, and God, would you be their sustainer and supplier? When they call, would you answer? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so I'm going to send you, too, as you go this week. Choose the narrow road and find rest. I love you. We'll see you next time.